Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The District, a Spectator World podcast about politics and culture. I'm Amber Athey, the Spectator World's Washington editor, and I'm joined by Ollie Weisman, deputy editor and author of The DC Diary. So we saw some pretty big developments this past week with Biden's Build Back Better plan, basically the crux of his domestic policy agenda. And it turns out that the infrastructure bill ended up having enough votes to go through thanks to the help of some congressional Republicans. And Democrats are now on their way to hammering out the reconciliation package. So, Ollie, can you just kind of give us an overview of where that current fight stands? Sure. So um, over the weekend, um, uh, after the late Friday night vote, Biden kind of stood up and, and kind of welcomed his big infrastructure package, unveiled it and kind of had a bit of a victory lap. And then he said at the end of his speech that he, he was confident now that Build Back Better, which is the, the bigger, um, more contentious package of social welfare spending, he said that he was confident this would now pass. And I think, you know, we've heard this line for months now. And actually, if you look at the hurdles that need to be cleared to get from where we are today to um, build back better as you know, a piece of legislation actually passes, there's still quite a few um, hurdles. So just to run through them uh, quickly, uh, the, the, the big one is the CBO score. So the moderates have kind of pledged their support to um, for the bill on the condition that um, the CBO, the kind of independent uh, adjudicator of, of, of what um, costs what uh, in legislation, they've said that they'll support the bill if the CBO um, agrees with the White House that basically the, the, the bill is deficit neutral. Now, um, there's some ominous news for Biden on that front this week because the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which is a, a group of um, nonpartisan uh, budget hawks have found that they, they estimate that $200 billion will be added to the deficit by the legislation. So so on the main thing, it's far from clear that Biden's going to have that win that he needs. Uh, then there are the immigration provisions in the bill, which uh, a number of um, Democrats uh, have said is a deal breaker for them. Um, these are measures that would basically give protections to illegal uh, immigrants in, in the US um, against deportation and so on. And it's not clear whether they'll clear the Bird rule, sorry, this is complicated, but bear with me. The Bird rule, which basically decides what and what can and cannot be in a reconciliation package. Then there's the salt deduction row, which is at which pits progressives against Democrats. Uh, then there's the economic back, backdrop, which is you know inflationary pressure and a sense that maybe now is not the time to be spending uh, trillions of dollars. Uh, and then there are the deadlines about the debt, the debt ceiling, and and avoiding a shutdown, which. Um, Democratic lawmakers also need to worry about uh, those coming up at the start of next month. So, you know, it's one thing to say we've passed infrastructure and we've all kind of agreed that we're going to figure out Build Back Better. But I would say there's a lot of thorny details there still. And um, so, you know, Biden should, 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 shouldn't, you know, should, 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 should avoid being too overconfident about, about his, his landmark legislation. Yeah, I think it, it goes to show that a lot of these, uh, the blustering and, the various claims that both the moderates and the progressives in the Democratic Party made about why they may or may not be supporting either infrastructure or reconciliation were kind of very surface level and not really about what they actually wanted, right? Because originally this fight started because Joe Biden said he wouldn't sign one bill without the other. And this sort of pitted the two wings against one another. You had moderates saying, well, we're not going to vote for the reconciliation package unless we get a vote on infrastructure first. And then you had the progressives saying the opposite. Well, we're not going to vote for infrastructure 
unless we're promised that the reconciliation package is going to pass. And now that infrastructure has passed, you would think that they have overcome that major hurdle and everything's going to be smooth sailing. But as you just laid out, the concerns on both sides are way deeper than just making sure both bills get passed. There's still a lot of policy-oriented concerns, fiscal-oriented concerns that they're going to have to work through in order to get this, this big boondoggle through. I'm really interested in the part about immigration because the Senate parliamentarian already ruled that one of their major immigration provisions couldn't be in the reconciliation package because, as you pointed out, the Bird Rule only allows things that have a major impact on the federal budget to be included in reconciliation, which would allow them to pass um, the bill with, you know, just simple majority as opposed to a filibuster-proof majority. And if they decide that the Democrats in the Senate could decide to basically ignore the Senate parliamentarians' ruling and pass this anyway, but th- there's been precedent before of Democrats coming to regret a decision like that. Um, for example, when they got rid of the filibuster under Harry Reid. Mitch McConnell warned him, you guys are going to regret this sooner than you think. And sure enough, uh, Mitch McConnell was then able to suspend the filibuster to push through a whole bunch of judicial appointments under Trump. So I I do think there's going to be a lot of pushback from moderates on that particular portion of the reconciliation package because they're very worried about precedent. They're very worried about following the rules. And Republicans could easily take advantage of something similar as soon as the midterms if, if they take back the Senate. Mm-hmm. On the point about the pairing of the two bills, I think it's, I'm about to say something that you won't hear very often on the, uh, from me or anyone on the Spectator podcast, uh, which is that I actually have some sympathy with the kind of AOC squad position on this, in the sense that, you know, the progressive caucus of which they are an especially noisy faction, all along have insisted that these two bills need to be paired, paired together. And, you know, you can agree or disagree on, on whether that's right or not. But there's an inter, um, there is a progressive conversation about whether these these letters they got on Friday night from moderates were enough of an assurance to like go ahead on on um, infrastructure um, with some confidence that they would get Build Back Better eventually. And I actually think it's it is a gamble. It is far from clear that you know if your red line is like well, these have to be paired. I don't know that the that the assurances they got on Friday night are actually especially strong. As I just listed, I can see plenty of ways in which um, the Joe Mansions of this world and others can kind of wriggle out of, of that if they want to. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens as this goes on. If they don't get a swift agreement, the kind of progressive on progressive kind of catfight that's going to break out um, would be would be quite something to behold, I think. Yeah, and I do think that the the moderates, you know, from their perspective, don't really have much incentive to play ball with the progressives. Um, and they do have a decent amount of leverage just because of the recent elections that we had a couple of weeks ago. The progressive agenda was largely stomped in Virginia, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, and in some of these other races um, where you would assume that the, the blue the heavy blue areas would win out um, for Democrats and instead the opposite happened. Um, You saw a huge repudiation of the defund the police movement. And so these moderates who come from states who are really happy with the way that they're governing are are very unlikely to sit there and say, well, sure, I'll help out AOC or I'll do a favor for 
the rest of these Democrats. I mean, if they're about saving their own skin and getting reelected, their constituents are very happy with the, the tack that they're taking on these spending bills. And then there's the question of the 13 Republicans who voted with the Democrats on the infrastructure package. And I, I don't think it's surprising that some of them would do this. Adam Kinzinger, obviously, nobody's shocked that he would vote with the Democrats because he's basically turned himself into a de facto Democrat over the past year or so because he was so anti-Trump that he became a Democrat, um, which is happens quite frequently, unfortunately. Um, but some of these other um, people on this list, like Van Drew and Don Young, it wouldn't seem immediately obvious um, that they would want to vote with the Democrats. And it, it's kind of baffling to me. And I was afraid this was going to happen when the Democrats first started having this fight because Republicans just love to, to throw away their leverage and hand Democrats a win. They like to snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, essentially. But um, I mean, they, they sh I, even Kevin McCarthy and some of what you would consider to be more moderate leaders of the Republican Party were saying that they were going to keep their, their caucus in line and they weren't going to vote for infrastructure and they were going to make the Democrats work out their issues and force them to have this very public fight. All the polling on these infrastructure and Build Back Better plans said that Democrats would be to blame if they didn't pass. Um, they said that Democrats would be to blame for a government shutdown. And yet, here it is, 13 Republicans vote for the infrastructure bill. I mean, it really just boggles the mind. I, I can't understand what the, the motivation was from them. So what I mean, I mean, as a you're obviously a close observer of, of all things GOP. I'm interested in your again, as you say, there's the there's the faction which are kind of it's less surprising the kind of very vocal anti-Trump faction, many, many of whom are retiring um, from Washington politics. Um, but but there are some interesting um, characters in there um, too. I mean, um, Nicole Maliotakis is one of the interesting ones I think from Staten Island, uh, who's reasonably. I mean, I don't know quite where you put her on the Trumpiness spectrum, but she's not, she's by no means a big vocal critic of the former president. Um, and so, yeah, I'm interested in your kind of read on, on your best guess, you know, on what, what actually is motivating that. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of naivety because there has always been this sort of contingent in the Republican Party and just among conservatives in general, where they have this misguided notion that if they do a few things that Democrats or liberals like, that they will respect them more and therefore return the favor. And it never happens. <laughs> um, I mean, we see it all the time with a perfect example is like Mitt Romney was the devil incarnate when he ran for president because he was a direct threat to Democrats. And then as soon as he like was an anti-Trumper, he was the Democrats' best friend because they could use him. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as he's not useful anymore, they hate him again. It's mm -hmm. the same thing with John McCain. I mean, it's a tale as old as time that Democrats will take advantage of Republicans when they when it's beneficial to them and when they're no longer of use or when they actually start doing conservative or Republican things again, that person gets cast out. And unfortunately, I just think there's so many Republicans who haven't learned that lesson yet. They haven't learned that no matter how many times you capitulate or give in, um, it's not going to curry you any favor with the Democratic Party. That's just not how they operate. They're a very loyal clan. They're very big on party identification. And so I, I just think that these these people are naive. I, I, that's the, the best way I can put it is they just don't understand that this is not um, a winning position for them, not only 
in their own party, but it's not going to be a long-term benefit to them with the Democrats either. But that, yeah, I guess what some of them would say is in tight districts, um, swing districts where some of them, you know, are elected, they, this is something they can go back to voters and say, like, I was there and I delivered you new bridges and so on and so forth, which I guess time will tell, right, how, how, that, how that plays out. Let's, let's move on, though, and, and let's talk about uh, the vice president. Kamala Harris is, I think, jetting off to Paris today, I believe, uh, or That's is already right. in Paris. I'm not sure exactly of the, her schedule. But uh, what's, she, what's she up to there and, and what, should we, what should we look out for? Well, it's really interesting. We haven't seen Kamala Harris in quite a while. Um, she was actually supposed to be in charge of currying votes for the Build Back Better plan um, about two months ago. She, she actually allegedly requested to be in charge of that and yet was seemingly absent during much of the negotiation process, presumably because most people don't really like her. And then she was also supposed to be in charge of the southern border crisis, which is still raging on, even though it's far past the normal seasonal um, time frame where you would see the natural increase in illegal immigration across the southern border. And now she is apparently flying to Paris to address the migrant crisis in France, which is really quite ironic because um, the, the best she did on the southern border was talk about the effects of climate change on migration. And she had the meeting with the Guatemalan president that went very poorly. He actually trashed the Biden administration right before Kamala met with him. And then she had all of these gaffes about in, in various interviews um, about the reasons for the migrant crisis, as well as why it took her so long to even visit the border. So now she's going over to France. She's going to address the migrant crisis there. I read that she even is allegedly going to um, provide support for border enforcement to keep Libyans out of France, which I think is, again, also quite ironic considering the Biden administration has talked about um, not only stopping construction of the border wall, but potentially tearing down portions of it that were reinforced by former President Donald Trump. So it just feels, again, like so, the Biden administration doesn't really understand the moment, I don't think. Um, they have continuously overplayed their hand on domestic politics. And then when they go abroad, they have been so deferential to both allies and to geopolitical foes that they've really lost a lot of the respect that they claimed they were going to earn back because um, our allies didn't like Trump very much. And it's just overall been quite a disaster. Um, Kamala on the foreign stage doesn't inspire much confidence to begin with because she really doesn't have very much experience with foreign policy or even traveling abroad at all. Um, she didn't do a whole lot of it when she was in the Senate. And so I guess the question is, like, why exactly is she even going on this trip? What is the goal? And why send Kamala, of all people? Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that the I think the logic of the trip is uh, to kind of patch up relations with France after this big row over Australian submarines, which, again, is a, a you add that to the list of, of ways in which um, the Biden administration hasn't necessarily succeeded on the world stage so far in the way it had hoped. An interesting other dynamic with the Kamala Harris story is her um, status supposedly as the kind of heir apparent in the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, that the, the idea that the, the more unpopular Biden got, the older Biden got, 
Um, and the more likely it looked like they were going to maybe go with someone else in 2024, you know, the idea is that the obvious candidate would be uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, the, the interesting polling this week, though, suggests that that's maybe not the best uh, plan uh, for democratic victory, because whilst Biden is very unpopular, his, I think, approval rating is, a, is in the mid, uh, sorry, high 30s. Harris is, is even is shockingly even worse. She's uh, sits on about 28%. So, I mean, I guess you've, you've listed some of the reasons as to, as to why that might be. But, you know, what's what's the Democratic plan here, do you think? Is, 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 is it Biden, can, can Biden turn it around? Is, is Harris the kind of best they can do? You know, where do they go with these two very unpopular figures? Yeah, I'm just not sure they even have a plan because when you look back at the post-border crisis nonsense with Kamala, her approval rating was already really bad. And so I think the Biden administration was like, all right, we better sideline her for a bit and keep her out of the spotlight and hopefully things will start to improve. Of course, while she was away, um, not only did the Biden administration continue to implode, but Kamala's approval rating got even lower. Um, So that clearly didn't work. And now they're trying to trot her out again. So I think the whole strategy kind of speaks to the fact that they don't really know what they're doing at all. And if I were the French and I was trying to repair my relations with the the leader of the free world and they sent Kamala to me, I don't think I would be happy. I think I'd actually be insulted. <laughs> <laughs> like that would be the last person I would want you to send to show your gratitude towards my country. It's like the least popular person and perhaps most ineffective in your entire administration. It feels like kind of a slap in the face. So as in terms of strategy, I, I don't think there is one. I think they're, um, they have tried a few different things, whether it's leaning in on wokeness. They've had National Pronoun Day at the State Department, and they've promoted Rachel Levine to the first female four-star admiral, and that hasn't really helped them a whole lot. They have tried to go for the isolationist populist route on Afghanistan and did a poor job with the withdrawal there, even though the idea was, I think, fine. It was very poorly executed. And they've tried to lead it on the domestic agenda and pass infrastructure and build back better. And that's led to distractions from the fact that there's a massive supply chain issue and a good shortage and inflation. So it, it doesn't feel like there is a cohesive strategy at all. And um, most of the things that they've been trying really have been backfiring and just making things worse. Well, Amber, you paint a, uh, a rosy picture of things in Washington <laughs> at the moment. So maybe on that cheery note, we should uh, leave it there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.